have no problems, but since Adam could pretty easily still get back up into Canada, but then it's like, can I get in very easily? And then on the way back, it would be easy for me to get back to the States, but then we have to make sure Adam can get back. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but Jenny Koshy fell. Oh. Oh. We need Who someone else to step out there. Oh. Sometimes on Facebook, and it's like, I don't want to hear you. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
texting up that, hey, you remember Mother's Day thing? Nice speaker. Thank you, you. you know. <laughs> she's, she's doing good as far as I know. Did you talk to Penny this morning? I did. I got a report. She's doing well. Had some pain this morning. Um, but now that she's fully awake, the pain's better. Um, taking a pain pill, so she's better now. Is she, is she supposed to move a little bit? With, I mean, you know, get up and down a little bit? She okay. is. She just can't put weight on her foot. Right, there's no, she can't put weight on her foot, but she's, she has to get up and down from her scooter. But she's got one of those scooters that she can kneel or something, or put the knee on her. She's got a scooter. No, it's, it's a ride on scooter. In her house. In her house. So, I mean, theoretically, she was thinking she could come if she felt well enough and she won't. No. But theoretically, she could come up on her scooter to, to church, and she might try and do her scooter to coffee on Wednesday um, because she can go on the street with it or on the sidewalks. So, but you know, had a report from her and a report from Donna. So, No, we got time. In fact, okay. if you're watching the webcast, if you're already there, I'm going to shut it off momentarily. It'll be back in a couple of minutes. I just need to adjust something. Something else is happening with her. I better stop talking. 
You can keep going for a couple minutes. I don't care. Sure. There 23 parties on Saturday oh and like one on Sunday. Oh my goodness. So and you still wonder. off in the way. there. So if you managed to make it on to the stream, welcome. Welcome to the rest of us. Today is Sickness Sunday. Today is Absent Sunday. 
We have uh, quite a few people out today with travel, with recovery, with family time. And so some of them are making an attempt to join on the stream. I was looking at uh, stats. Periodically I do that. And it's interesting that we, uh, not so much on the live stream, but watching the video after we have people uh, sometimes throughout the United States, certainly in, in Canada. So hi, Adam's mom and dad, at whatever point you might see this. Uh, but also also overseas in, uh, in Europe, in the Middle East, in Africa. And that just kind of seems to move around. We had, I think, at one, one of the sermons, we had a bunch of people from Sweden. It's like how they, how they even find us, I, I have no idea. But uh, we're, we're grateful for that. Um, so I'm going to be reading from the London Baptist Confession, Chapter 23, on lawful oaths and glory. We will, we will sing together. Uh, Dakota is going to finish up the book of Amos for us this morning, this mor- uh, for us this morning. Uh, we'll pray together, and uh, I'll be preaching from Matthew chapter 22. So let me open us in prayer, and then we'll look at the London Baptist Confession. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us and for gathering us together. Uh, There's so many things that press on us from this world and from the concerns that we have and the the daily experience that we have in life. Excuse me. This is a time that we desire to shut those things out, not permanently. Uh, We can't escape everything permanently. But to give this time and a focus to you, to worship your name, to exalt your name, and to lift it up on high, to celebrate who you are and what you have done for us, and to come to your word and to be nourished and fed according to your truth and in the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would help us this morning in our frailty, in our weakness, in uh, in the sickness, and in every aspect of life as we come before you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Regarding oaths, lawful oaths and vows, the London Baptist Confession says... A lawful oath is an element of religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what is sworn and to judge the one swearing according to the truth or falsity of it. People should swear by the name of God alone and only with the utmost holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear an empty or ill-advised oath by that glorious and awe-inspiring name or to swear at all by anything else is sinful, and to be abhorred. Yet in weighty and significant matters, an oath is authorized by the word of God to confirm truth and end all conflict. So an, a lawful oath should be taken when it is required by legitimate authority in such circumstances. Whoever takes an oath authorized by the word of God should consider with due gravity the seriousness of such a weighty act and to affirm nothing in it except what one knows to be true. For the Lord is provoked by ill-advised, false, and empty oaths, and because of them this land mourns. An oath is to be expressed in the plain and ordinary meaning of the words without any ambiguity 
or mental reservation. An oath must not be made to any creature but to God alone. Vows should be, I'm sorry, a vow should not be made to any creature but to God alone. Vows should be made and performed with the utmost conscientious care and faithfulness. And then because of the time the London Baptist Confession was written, it goes on to say, finally, uh, however, Roman Catholic monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty and obedience to monastic rules are by no means steps to higher perfection. Instead, they are superstitious and sinful snares in which Christians may not entangle themselves. Of course, other, uh, other religious views can involve vows. We can involve uh, take vows ourselves. I swear I'll never do that again when we apologize to people for something. I, I promise I'll never do that again. That's, that's a vow. We ought to take such things very seriously. The, the, the whole point of this at the time was to answer the question of what kind of oaths can a Christian take? Jesus says, swear by nothing. Don't swear at all. Don't take oaths. Um, the view is not that he was prohibiting all things, but saying when you do that, God takes you seriously. When you take an oath before God to tell the truth in a court of law or, or in some other circumstance, God is taking that oath personally. You're swearing it to him and he will hold you accountable for that. One of the, the areas where people take vows today, take oaths today that we often don't consider in light of this is in marriage. People take vows of marriage, um, intending to break them. I've heard marriage vows that say, as long as we both shall love, which is good for a day, because who knows what tomorrow will be like. So even when we, when we have friends or neighbors or family who are getting married, who, who especially if it seems to be sudden or ill-advised, I think we're wise to speak up and say, before you do that, recognize how seriously your creator takes those kinds of vows. Let me just switch over to my next thing here. Let's go ahead and sing if you'd like to stand. <coughs> Because of, are you there now? Okay, so the little picture in the right-hand corner shows that. Okay. No, you're, <laughs> you're doing great. Not a problem. Okay, so just because of my my cough and all of that, I've chosen songs that should be familiar to you guys. I'll kind of get you going and.
be in Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them, and if they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight in the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall, take, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them, for evil and not for good. The Lord, the God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds up who builds his upper chamber in the heavens, and finds and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Keftur, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. And that day I will raise up the booth of David, that has fallen, and repair its branches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as the days of old, and they, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat from them their fruit. I will plant in them on their land. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God.
got to keep my got to keep my throat wet sorry <coughs> as we come to our prayer time today I know that uh, Pat is traveling, Penny is recovering, uh, Hughes's have harvest, uh, harvest, <sighs> that's the goal, his harvest, Hughes's have the harvest, they've got plant going and they've had just various complications that are getting in the way, so let's be praying about those things, uh, other prayer requests? This morning? Uh, Donna, uh, oh, yep. Cynthia and, and she said that uh, Cynthia had a much better day yesterday, praying she can gain some weight and some strength and pounds before her next treatment, which is many days away. Our tech person decided to have surgery, so we're, we're doing what we can with what we have. That's right. Yeah, so Donna, Cynthia, and Herb. Adam, you said your, your folks are coming next week? get to meet them on Sunday? Are they here long enough time? Good. That's awesome. No, that's just the week that we're going to choose to go somewhere else for Sunday. (laughs) They're very much looking forward to being here. That's cool. Yep, like Rush Limbaugh said, I've got a face for radio and a body for the widescreen. So, other, other prayer requests this morning? I am recovering slowly, so that's good. Yeah. Actually, uh, for me, with the, back down, the Building Bridges group, I'm really making a friend, but I want to share the gospel. So. Yeah, Building Bridges is a, a parent support group that's in the formation process right now that's supporting two parents, and Linda's doing the, the majority of the support there. It's, I think it's mutual. The, the desire is to see others join in, but right now it's an opportunity to, to share the gospel. So, Okay. All right. Let's pray. Yahweh reigns, he is clothed with majesty. Yahweh is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is established, it will not be shaken. Your throne is established from old, from old, O Lord, you are from everlasting. Father in heaven, we come today to worship you, 
To you alone be glory. You reign over all things. You are clothed with majesty. You clothe yourself with strength and with glory. You have ruled over your creation from the moment you spoke it into being. We begin by confessing that none of us are worthy to enter your presence on our own. We were born in sin. And even though we know the Savior and he has taken away our sin, we continue to violate your holiness in ways we don't comprehend. We confess that Jesus, your son, is our sufficient Lord and Savior, and he is worthy to be in your presence. And it's through his worthiness and his holiness and his righteousness that we even dare call upon you this morning. But Father, because of what Jesus has done and because of our place in him, we dare to call upon you for everything. We confess our sins and we confess our need to you. And we bring our petitions to you this morning. Help us to do that with an attitude of humility and gratitude and faith in your wisdom and your providence. We lift up Randy and Jewel and Sarah and Elliot as they, as they work on uh, the, the planting process as they deal with all of the other technicalities and the complications that have arisen. And we ask that you would give them rest today, that you would strengthen them, that you would unite them as a family, grant them peace and comfort in your knowledge, in your providence, in your care. continue to ask for Donna um, as she takes care of Cynthia and her, that you would give her strength, that you would uh, meet her where she is, and that she would be able to continue to, and not grow weary doing good, but that she would continue to be a blessing to them, which we know she is. 
Lord, we thank you for our faithful sister. Mm -hmm. We just ask for her um, that you would continue to give her your good words of truth and life and that she would um, just continue to be the light that we know she is. Mm -hmm. Lord, we lift up Linda as she builds a relationship with this other mom through this group. We ask that they both would be strengthened uh, for the purpose that this group is being formed, uh, that their, their wisdom of experience could be passed on to parents of younger kids who, who are still learning, figuring so many things out. <coughs> but we ask that you would open up avenues for Linda to be able to share Christ with this precious woman, that you would call her to you by your grace and by your spirit, that she would recognize her need for a savior and your provision through your son. And to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew with me, chapter 22. As we continue to ponder the words of Jesus, learn from him. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Give us a hunger for it this morning. Nourish us with it. Heal us with it. Correct us with it. And strengthen us. We thank you for the truth of your word and the power of it and the authority of it. And to the best of our ability, Lord, we humble ourselves under it as you speak to us. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We live in a time when there's just tremendous deception. There's just tremendous deception. Uh, people are no longer sure of anything, yet they're sure of everything, but at the same time they're sure of nothing. And uh, if, you're, if you're not convinced of that, just by the circumstances of life, I remind you that we've got a Supreme Court justice who doesn't know what a woman is. Well, Jesus on this particular day in, in Matthew is faced with uh, several challenges from people. He's already had some significant conversations with Pharisees, and the Pharisees have finally marveled and left him and gone away. And now the Sadducees come. It's, it's their turn. Beginning in verse 23, on that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. And so also the second and the third, down to the seventh, and last of all, the woman died. 
In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The challengers have shifted to the Sadducees. Sadducees were one of the three main religious sects in Israel, along with the Pharisees and the Essenes. They were distinguished by four primary teachings, just very quickly here. They prioritized scripture, written scripture, over human tradition. Second, they believe that human beings have autonomous free will. They picked this up from the Greek philosophers and the Hellenists. They denied the concept of fate, which was correct, but they also denied God's sovereignty in his decrees. Third, they denied the supernatural and spirits, whether angels or demons. And fourth, they denied that there is any sort of afterlife. And therefore, as Matthew tells us, they deny the resurrection. So they come to Jesus with a challenge. And they, they base the challenge on the teaching of leveret marriage. Uh, a leveret marriage was a marriage where a, a man who was married died without children. His, his brother would marry his wife to produce children with her. Um, we see this in, uh, in Genesis chapter 38 with Judah and his sons and Tamar, the, the, the wife of his son Ur. Um, Ur dies without children. Judah commands his son Onan to take her as a wife and to produce children with her. Onan refuses and God strikes him dead. I'll let you read the rest of that chapter when no children are present. Uh, it, this whole practice of leveret marriage is kind of unthinkable in our time. It's kind of gross to us. It's, it's bordering on incest. But it made perfect sense in the ancient world for a couple of reasons. Obviously, it allowed a man's family line to continue. The children were not the dead man's biological children, but they did become his legal children. They inherited his name, his possession, his wealth, his land. His name would be preserved through them. And at the time... When genealogies were uh, your foundation, that was very important. And just as important, it provided for a childless widow. We just are, we, we've got no concept, I think, of what that world was like. I don't think that there's a place on earth today that matches what the ancient world was like. A, a, a childless widow had no way to provide for herself. There was no social security. There was no retirement benefits. There was no police force to keep her safe. Surviving on a day-to-day -day basis meant planting and harvesting crops, uh, raising animals and slaughtering them, building and maintaining a shelter. That might be a tent and it might be a building made of stone. Gathering wood and water on a daily, daily basis, defending yourself against violent people, violent men, and animals. And so a childless widow was in trouble. And that trouble just got worse as she got older and less capable physically. 
So Leverett marriage was not treating a woman as a piece of property. Leverett marriage required that women be treated with tenderness and with care and protection. So the Sadducees pick up on this, this rich, valuable, historical custom, and they create a silly straw man argument to present to Jesus. Uh, a straw man argument is an argument that is... Uh, misrepresenting somebody else's position through exaggeration or oversimplification in order to make it sound silly so that it can be easily disproved or mocked or disregarded. A married man dies without children. His brothers marry his widow in, in turn, but they all die without giving her children. She works her way down the line until the seven brothers have died. Then she dies in the resurrection whose wife will she be? Now we know that this is a straw man argument because Matthew tells us that. He makes sure that we as Gentiles understand, verse 23, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. They weren't asking a legitimate question. They weren't curious about how this would work out. They are mocking the idea of the resurrection by creating the picture of this absurd situation. Jesus doesn't fall for this. To the contrary. But Jesus, verse 29, answered and said to them, you are mistaken. We can just pause there for a second. They're mistaken. That means that they're wrong. That's clear. But the word mistaken means misled, led astray, misinformed, deceived. So Jesus doesn't accuse these men of being insincere, although I think that at this point with this argument, they're being insincere. But however sincere they are, sincerity doesn't cancel out error. Most mistaken and deceived people are, are very sincere. Our culture is being driven largely by people with very sincere emotion right now. People are intensely sincere in what they think. Every pro-abortion argument is ultimately emotional. Every pro-perversion, pro-LGBTQ argument is ultimately emotional. Every we're all going to die from climate change argument is ultimately emotional. People claim great sincerity, great passion over all of this. And because our world no longer thinks, because our world no longer reasons, because so few people are educated, not in terms of college knowledge, but in terms of wisdom and being able to think, they fall prey to this. They're easily misled. Uh, even within Christendom, within the, the, the church, false teachers of charismaticism on one side, the false teachers of progressivism and the left on the other side rely heavily on emotion. And so they mislead people. Those who are deceived are unquestionably sincere. I, deceived people are the most sincere people I meet. I, in all honesty, the most sincere people I meet are usually deceived. They're usually deceived. They've fallen so heavily into their emotional view that they're not thinking. Sincerity is not a defense against deception. So these men have been rendered defenseless against deception and they prove it by raising the straw man argument against the resurrection uh, how did they fall prey to deception jesus tells us 
You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. You are mistaken. You are deceived, not understanding, or because you don't understand the scriptures, because you don't understand the power of God. They didn't understand the scriptures. The Pharisees did prioritize the written scripture over tradition, but they didn't understand it. They said they they valued it, but they didn't understand it. They weren't alone. At the time that Jesus arrived on the scene, virtually no one understood the scriptures. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, if the rulers of this age had understood God's purposes, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand. God gave us his word so that he, we would understand it. The London Baptist Confession which uh, is the foundation for One Hope Fellowship, says we believe that the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is contained in the Holy Scriptures. We believe that nothing is ever to be added to the Scriptures. We believe that the things that must be known, believed, and obeyed for salvation are clearly set forth and explained in Scripture. And that anyone can achieve a sufficient understanding of them by using ordinary means, by reading and studying and thinking. But here's the thing. We also believe that in order for salvation to take place, there has to be an inward illumination of the Spirit of God. So that we we don't just understand intellectually, but we understand at the heart. And the Spirit of God will not grant that illumination to those who come to the Word in rebellion or hardness of heart or pride or unbelief, and the Sadducees are filled with rebellion. They have rebelled against the Father and against his Son. Their hearts are hardened toward the Scriptures. That's why they could take a, a, a biblical thing like leveret marriage and, and use it to create a, a mocking picture. They're filled with pride in their own position and ability. That's why they believe that they're autonomous. Their will is absolute. Nobody determines what they do. And a rank refusal to believe what God said. The Pharisees denied virtually everything that makes God, God. And so it's no wonder that they couldn't understand his word. They're deceived into denying the resurrection because they don't understand the scripture. They also don't understand the power of God. They don't understand that God's power accomplishes things beyond our comprehension. Their view of the world was entirely natural. Their view of the world left no room for supernatural events. They denied the afterlife, spirits, angels, demons, miracles, and anything that was beyond their understanding. They affirmed free will because they could not comprehend that there was an intelligence and a purpose beyond theirs. What they saw was everything that there was. If they couldn't see any sense to it, there was no sense to it. If they couldn't see a valuable purpose to something, it was evil. They didn't understand the power of God. I think given time, they would have denied God himself. As just a cultural creation, no different than the the gods of Greece and Rome that they had been exposed to. Now, just supposing, what if you were a man or a woman who truly believed in God, confessed your sins in faith that God would forgive, offered the sacrifices that God called for according to that faith <coughs> and died, as, as Hebrews 11, thir- uh, 13 says, without receiving the promises, but having seen the promises by faith and having welcomed them. Uh, what happens to you 
as far as the Sadducees are concerned at when you die? Absolutely nothing. Because there's no afterlife. There's no heaven. There's no hell. None of that mattered. What if you were a man or woman who denied God, who lived in sin and rebellion against his word, against his holiness, cared nothing for him, cared nothing for his people? What happens to you when you die, according to the Sadducees? Absolutely nothing. There is no heaven. There is no hell. John Lennon was a Sadducee. In the song Imagine, he said, Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. John Lennon was a Sadducee. He denied all of those things. We understand that there are people in our world who deny those things. What we can understand is that there's people in pulpits who deny those things. You would think that the pulpit requires a belief in the things you teach. You might as well have a a chief of medicine at a hospital who doesn't believe in medicine. Well, the Sadducees did not believe that God possessed the power to do what they could not comprehend, and so they simply rejected it. They simply rejected the idea of the power of God. They were religious, but their religion didn't have any truth or power to it. They didn't understand the scriptures. They didn't understand the power of God. And as a result, they were defenseless against deception. They were defenseless against deception. So Jesus corrects their thinking. Verses 30 to 32. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, better like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus addresses their error in two ways. Uh, First, he talks about life for those who are resurrected. And he says it's not going to be anything like life that we've known. And second, he says the resurrection is necessary because of God's nature. I want to take those in reverse. So first, number two. Verse number two, the resurrection is necessary because of God's nature. Jesus quotes what God says to Moses. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says that in Exodus three, three times and once in Exodus four. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. When Yahweh spoke those words to Moses, those men had been dead for centuries. And yet he says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Abraham, and then he died. (coughs) Excuse me. I was the God of Abraham, then he died. (coughs) I was the God of Isaac, then he died, and I was the God of Jacob, then he died. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. They had died and been buried, but their souls continued to exist in conscious awareness of God. As we know it from the New Testament that we do. Jesus takes God's words literally. He doesn't even interpret them. He simply quotes them and takes them at their face value. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live before God. Moses and Gideon still live before God. David and Isaiah still live before God. 
God's nature is being the God of the living, not the God of the dead. The hope of resurrection is found in the Old Testament. Now, Revelation is progressive. We find more information by the time we get to the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible than we do in Genesis chapter 1. Revelation is unveiled under time. But truth is not progressive. Doctrine is not progressive. These things were true before God had revealed them. One of the oldest chronological books in the Bible is Job. It speaks of a time perhaps before Abraham lived. Job in his suffering says, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will behold God, whom I myself shall behold and my eyes will see and not another. So, Job says, in the midst of all my misery, I know that I'm going to die one day, but nevertheless, my Redeemer lives. And after I have died physically, I will see him, and I will see him in my flesh, which requires a confidence in the resurrection. He doesn't put it that way. He doesn't say it that way, but that's the only conclusion we can reach. So the second point here is that the resurrection is necessary because of God's nature as the God of the living. And the first point, remember I'm taking this in reverse. Number two, and then now number one, life in the resurrection is different than life prior to death. For in the resurrection, they, are neither, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now the Sadducees didn't understand this because they didn't understand the scripture and they didn't understand the power of God. They had this comical view of the resurrection where a person simply climbs up out of the grave somehow and goes back to their life. They simply climb up out of the grave and they go back to their life. Well, what scripture says is we don't climb up out of the grave. We are raised up and we don't go back. We go forward to life. We don't go back to life. So they think that leveret marriage is the perfect a uh, way to disprove the resurrection. Here's this woman. She's been married seven times to seven brothers. When they've all been resurrected, who does she go back to? But nobody goes back to anything is Jesus' point. In eternity, we're like the angels. We're not going to marry or be given in marriage. Because they didn't know the scripture or the power of God, they could only interpret the resurrection according to their own small, sinful imaginations. And not surprisingly, their imaginations were silly. They turned the glory of the resurrection into a ridiculous picture that's easy to mock, that's easy to dismiss. What will life be after we're resurrected? I can't give you details. You know that. The scripture simply doesn't give us many details, but I can tell you some things. I can tell you again, first of all, that we don't go back. We go forward. We're not resurrected to <coughs> We're not resurrected to resume something that we didn't finish before. We are raised to a new life. We're told that all humanity will be resurrected. We're told the wicked will be resurrected to face judgment. We're told the elect will be resurrected to eternal life with God. 
We're told that eternal existence with God will not be in the, the heavenly throne room, but on a new earth within a new universe. We're told that eternal existence will be completely free of sin and therefore free from everything that arises from sin, like death, tears, pain, mourning, bitterness, regret, disappointment, jealousy, anger, selfishness. Everything that arises from sin is gone. It simply won't exist anymore. One of my favorite professors in seminary was, was Alan Gomes. He writes this in his book, 40 Questions About Heaven and Hell, speaking about, the, about eternity and marriage. We can be confident that we will not pine after whatever does not carry over from the old order. For in the eternal state, we shall be fully satisfied, lacking nothing we desire. If something we enjoyed in this life does not carry over into the next, it is only because God will replace it with something much better. What about the intense emotional closeness that characterizes a happy marriage? If marriage will be no more, then will we not miss that intimacy? Well, the answer here is what we just observed. God takes nothing away from us in the eternal state except to replace it or enhance it with something better. In this instance, it is not that we will love our earthly spouse any less in the eternal state than we do now, but that we will love everyone in the eternal state to a degree unfathomable and unattainable at present. Whose wife will she be? She won't be anybody's wife. And you only imagine that because you don't know the scripture or the power of God. That there could be something more, that there could be something better than what we've experienced here. So as we bring this home, the, the Sadducees who didn't understand the scriptures or the power of God to do what they couldn't imagine were defenseless against deception. We're seeing the same sort of a thing today. There's been a move to uh, normalize homosexuality and transgenderism. Andy Stanley is the son of Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley died several weeks ago. Andy Stanley's church in the last week or two I just read has publicly baptized a professing transgender person. He waited till his dad was dead. Why? Well, Andy has made it clear over the recent years he doesn't understand the scriptures and he doesn't believe in the power of God. He doesn't believe what the scriptures say about those things, and he doesn't believe that God can actually change somebody. All he can do is create this impossible scenario where I guess it's just all okay, because he doesn't understand the scriptures, and he doesn't believe in the power of God. He doesn't understand God's power to transform sinners. The word of God can be really intimidating. It's, it's like being in desperate need of a drink of water, wandering through the trees and coming out into the open onto a beach at Lake Superior, the largest freshwater lake in the world. And your first thought is, I need a drink of water, and you go get a drink of water, and then you stand back and you start contemplating that lake. Maybe there's a sign or somebody talks to you, and you learn that there's more than 31,000 square miles of surface area. It's got an average depth of more than 400 feet. It's 350 miles long and 160 miles wide at its widest point. How on earth do you drink all of that? 
one drink at a time. How on earth do you handle the immensity of scripture? A, a page at a time. You just come to it a page at a time. It's no less intimidating for me after 44 or 45 years in the Lord, after 30 years of ministry, the word of God is no less intimidating. In fact, if anything, it's more intimidating because I, I, I know the boundaries better than I ever did before. But I've never found a better approach than simply opening, reading with an attitude of humility and curiosity, reading with a longing to know my God and to obey him, reading with a desire to know more about him so that I can worship him and so that my feet can be on solid ground. The deeper I dive, the deeper it seems to go. For all the experience that I have, for all the, all the familiarity that I have, I just take it a swallow at a time. The same that we all do. And because I come to the word of God, then I'm convinced of the power of God. I'm convinced of his power to transform. I'm convinced of his power because in his word, he tells us what his power is and what it's for. And so the people who even today uh, make up stories about the power of God being exercised and sometimes create fake miracles because of their need to believe something about the power of God. They actually miss the power of God. It's, it's one thing to see a, a miracle take place, and I'm sure seeing the miracles of Jesus take place during those years must have been stunning. We keep seeing people who are just, they just marveled. They were stunned at what they did. It's another thing not to give them, get the miracle, but to believe anyway. It's, it's another thing not to get the miracle, but to remain faithful day by day and to actually grow in love and appreciation for who God is. It's by knowing the scriptures, knowing the power of God, that we are protected against error. That we're protected against the deceptions that surround us on all sides. So I urge you to the scriptures. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time. We lift up those who are not with us and ask for your blessing to be upon them and your comfort to be with them. As we go, would you send us confident in your love and confident in the truth of your word. The enemy will do everything that he can to keep us out of your word. He will present every distraction that he can. He'll present every reason that he can, why we should delay, why we should put it off, why we don't know enough, why we already know enough. Would you help us just to keep coming? Keep giving us a hunger and a thirst that only your word will satisfy so that our eyes may be lifted to Jesus, that we may know you and follow you. We thank you for this time in your precious name. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.